From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Businesses are finding unique ways to recruit and keep employees as they try to make it through the pandemic, like offering next-door daycare to working parents. I actually um, saw her roll over for the first time. I think it allows me to show up to work pretty holistically. Um, I don't have to compartmentalize my identity and role as a dad and as an employee, they kind of overlap. Then solar, wind, hydro, and geothermal power, even battery storage. In the face of climate change, can they handle the energy demand? We made a lot of progress integrating all the different renewable technologies onto our grid. We know how the grid of the future will be different to really go forward aggressively and start to make this energy transition a reality. And they were back. Now wolves are disappearing from Colorado again. Thank you for your generous gift during our recent fund drive. Because of you, Colorado Public Radio can continue to do its best work, delivering the kind of news and music our community relies on. And we are so grateful. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. On workdays, Dominique Schroeder can look out from her downtown Denver office and watch her six-month-old daughter, Zaylee, play outside at daycare. There's a set of binoculars set up just for that. I actually um, saw her roll over for the first time. I was shocked. I was like, oh my God, she just rolled. She hasn't even done that at home. And I was messaging her teacher and saying, like, did she just roll? And they're like, yeah, you can see her. And I'm like, yeah. The daycare called The Beehive opened in March. It was started for employees by the fast-growing company Guild Education, and it's on the second floor of the building right next to the Guild's offices in downtown Denver. Parents drop off their kids in the morning, and many come back here during the day to visit. When Guild employee Eric Ptolemy wants to see his one-year-old daughter Hadley, he just walks across the courtyard. Most of the time the Beehive's been open, I've been able to sneak down at least once a day and just take her out for maybe 15 or, or 30 minutes for a quick walk around downtown. It's still not the norm for companies to have childcare on site. Ptolemy says having Hadley's daycare next door is a huge incentive for staying at Guild. I think it allows me to show up to work pretty holistically. Um, I don't have to compartmentalize my identity and role as a dad and as an employee. They kind of overlap. Parents say the price is right, too. They pay on a sliding scale based on their salary. Dominique Schroeder says she pays $966 a month. She says that's lower than the $1,200 to $1,500 a month she'd have to pay for a comparable child care option. Schroeder says it's also created a tight-knit community among employees with young children. Your kids are all kind of in the same class. You get to say, like, oh, what's your kid doing today? Oh, mine did this. And just to have that sense of community. The Beehive has about 40 kids right now, with capacity for another 35, spaces they hope to fill. As for teachers, wages start at well above average for childcare workers. Assistant teacher Allie Andrews makes $19 an hour. She's always loved babies, but now she says she actually gets paid for what she loves. The moment you walk into a classroom with kids, it's just like immediate happiness. They just put a smile on your face, they're funny, and their energy is just through the roof always, and I think it makes work so much more fun. The CEO and co-founder of Guild Education has her own kids at the Beehive, twin girls, and she joins us now. Rachel Carlson, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Did having your own kids help you see the need for something like this? 
Absolutely. Though I'll admit that uh, it was really moms ahead of me who I considered role models who helped me realize how important this was before I got pregnant. Um, a couple of really fantastic guild moms um, were on the team when when I hadn't yet started having kids and helped me realize how critical childcare is to helping women be successful at work. Well, I want to know a little bit more about where this idea specifically came from. Did you have a model out there for on-site childcare? You know, we didn't. Um, On one level, I did in that my grandmother started a number of preschools here in Denver in the 60s and 70s. Um, She's who we named the Beehive actually after. Her name's Bee. (laughs) And she, um, even when she was running a preschool, she had her, my youngest aunts and uncles in cribs in the back of her (laughs) office as an executive director. So I call her the OG working mom (laughs) in the 60s. but I had this dream of doing it, but actually it was really hard to find uh, replicable role models beyond some on the coasts like Patagonia, who has been doing this for decades, but not many companies had. In Colorado, what is the landscape like for this model of childcare? You know, it's rough. As far as we understand, we're the only employer-sponsored daycare in, in downtown Denver. Um, and uh, Denver's a bit of a daycare desert, unfortunately. This is, a, I think, a really critical problem that we need to spend more time on as a city and as a state. And we should say that your company, Guild Education, has a unique model itself. The company works with businesses to provide college education for employees. And you've joined us before to talk about that. Um, What have been the biggest hurdles to get this project up and running? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. At Guild, we every day get to think about how do you solve for the needs of the worker um, and of the learner? And that's what we do in thinking about bringing education options to America's frontline workforce. And we just tried to apply those same design principles to our work at Guild. You know, there are a couple of corporate daycare models that you can hire to come in and build a daycare for you. But um, we really wanted to do the learning ourselves and and understand all of the challenges and really listen to our own employees and parents, moms and dads, to understand what they needed and what they wanted. Um, And we also wanted to create the opportunity so that our teachers could benefit from our programs because, you know, Colorado has a real constraint in teachers. And so we thought that having a a lead teacher and assistant teacher model that we could run ourselves would enable all of those teachers to have access to our education programs. And so we took a design thinking approach to it, which is how we try and do most things at Guild. Um, But uh, that's not to say it was easy. In fact, um, the regulatory hurdles and and the real challenges of opening a daycare caught us by surprise. And let's talk a little bit about how this works financially. Parents pay on a sliding scale. Teachers are paid above what many earn who work with young children. How are you able to charge parents less and pay teachers more and still sustain the daycare program? Great question. So when I first brought this to my board, I brought them a budget and I said, hey, I'd like to open a childcare center with a daycare and a preschool. And I'm going to ask that the company cover some of the overhead so we can do those two things, pay teachers above market rate um, and ensure that our parents aren't paying more than they would in market with a sliding scale. And the way I'd like to do that is I'd like you all to approve for me to subsidize this. And it's going to cost less than our AC and less than our snacks and meals budget. 
and my board laughed. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure, you know, in San Francisco, the perks of snacks and meals are, are sort of ridiculous, or at least they were before COVID. And so I just got my board aligned that having a childcare center was more critical to our values than any other company's snack budget. Do you even break even though? We do. Yeah, we've designed it so that um, between the the, uh, the the guild annual subsidy and what we then can, then the parents are able to contribute that the that the beehive can break even. But guild is going to make an ongoing subsidy every year. And if for some reason I hope to be the CEO of guild for a long time, but if for some reason I'm ever not, I've made a personal commitment um, that I would uh, take that over if, if anything ever changed and guild wasn't supportive of that decision. I also know that COVID highlighted the challenges for parents finding and affording child care and a lot of women left the workforce. Let's talk about the teachers, though. It has been tough finding teachers who want to work in the child care field in part because of low salaries broadly. Have you had the same problem finding teachers? You know, we haven't. We've been really fortunate to find tremendous teachers. And, you know, I asked Julia to take a pretty creative approach to hiring our teachers. I didn't want there to be a degree requirement. In fact, I emphatically wanted a variety of folks who have and haven't completed teaching degrees to have the chance to work at Guild. And I wanted to honor lived experience, right? Many daycare workers are daycare workers simply because they don't have a degree and they've spent decades of their lives caring for children, but haven't had that chance. And we also wanted a diverse classroom. We wanted men in the classroom, which is one of the least diverse categories in childcare today. And we also wanted uh, teachers of color. And so we were really fortunate that with Julia and Linda's leadership, they were able to recruit great teachers. And luckily we get to recruit a few more. So if you're listening and, and you're excited about any of that, do let us know. And you mentioned Julia. That's Julia Shepard who runs the program. So this is not for every business. It is not necessarily replicable for smaller companies, you know, ones that don't even have a snack budget to begin with or ones that can't afford to set something like this up. You could say that it is in some ways for elite businesses. What would you tell others who might be thinking of this type of program? Well, so I believe the economies of scale mean that any company with over 500 workers can do this. And when I was starting looking at building this, I asked all the CEOs I knew of larger companies, why haven't you done this? And if I'm being candid, I heard a lot of excuses. But the challenge was those excuses sounded, you know, um, meaningful to mostly men, mostly older men who run a lot of our companies. I believe that any large organization can and should do this. And then I believe we should figure out how to create models that actually help make it easier for small businesses. In fact, I've been recently mentoring an organization called WeCare that's looking at building smaller home daycares that can support small and medium-sized businesses who have the same challenges. So I don't believe childcare is rocket science. I believe it's something we just need to focus on in America. I imagine like a lot of kids, your girls were home during COVID. You actually had to delay opening the beehive. Have you noticed any differences in your children now that they've been with other kids for a while? Oh my gosh, so much so. I I have twins, which means that there's lots of dynamics that get baked in when it's just the two of them playing all the time and watching my 
slightly quieter one suddenly blossoming in the beehive and finding ways to be a leader and come home and tell us stories about that, as well as watching my slightly uh, more talkative one say, oh, I I found a new friend and she's four and I look up to her. I mean, it's so natural for kids to get to grow up in communities and COVID really starved us of all of that. And so having them in a community of really cool kids with cool parents is really joyful for me. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Rachel Carlson is the co-founder and CEO of Denver-based Guild Education. Her company recently opened a child care center for its employees adjacent to the Guild's main office. The pandemic has brought on a wave of new workplace automation. There are more physical robots in warehouses, like the ones we imagined from WALL-E and other movies. There are also more software tools that automate tasks like Slack or Microsoft Teams. This afternoon, I'll be talking about what that means for you and the economy at a live event with David Brancaccio. He hosts the Marketplace Morning Report. Join us at 4 o'clock for the closing keynote of Denver Startup Week. It's a free hybrid event, so you can stream it online or you can come in person. Just be sure to register online because space is limited. RSVP and get more information at denverstartupweek.org. When we come back, taking renewable energy to the next level. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. An informed citizenry is at the heart of a dynamic democracy. Thomas Jefferson wrote those words more than 230 years ago. But it's especially true now as we face three questions on our statewide ballots for 2021. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News Director, and CPR News is here to help you be informed and participate in democracy. Even in an off election year like this one, we have your back. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 Voter's Guide. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. President Biden recently visited the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, also known as NREL and Golden. He spoke about the climate crisis. We don't have a lot of time. We don't have much more than 10 years, for real. And this is a decisive decade. He emphasized that humans have caused climate change and humans can solve the problem. I had a chance to see the state of the art wind turbine testing and new battery technologies. Because of the years of work that have taken place here, and these technologies aren't science fiction. They're ready to be installed and scaled up across the country right now. Where are we on renewable energy technologies? Martin Keller is the director of NREL and president of the Alliance for Sustainable Energy. That's the company that operates NREL for the U.S. Department of Energy. Welcome to the program, Martin. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to all of you today. Many politicians, including several past presidents, have made the pilgrimage to NREL to elevate the renewable energy conversation. What, if anything, felt different this time? What's really different now is the urgency to really act. And as we saw this so nicely with the president's visit, call of urgency that we don't have any time to waste. So the time is right now to act to really start the energy transition and accelerate this. And I think we have a lot of the technology ready and ideas how we can fill some of these gaps to act right now and into our economy. 
To really underscore that urgency that you're talking about, Biden spoke about the increased frequency of extreme weather events across the country and the globe. He said, we are blinking code red as a nation and pointed out that extreme weather cost America $99 billion last year alone. But he seemed careful to end on a hopeful note. Yes, we face a crisis. But we face a crisis with an unprecedented opportunity to create good jobs in the future, create industries of the future, to win the future, to save the planet. Ladies and gentlemen, we can do this. This is the United States of America. People put a lot of hope in renewable energy solving the climate crisis. You're at the center of that work. Martin, how optimistic are you? So this said, we have a lot of work ahead of us. But right now, we, we have... Uh, based on the nice research progress we made in solar technologies, where we now have the technology to start to deploy solar at a much larger scale. We made significant progress in, in wind energy technologies. We made a lot of progress integrating all the different renewable technologies onto our grid. We know how the grid of the future will be different to really go forward aggressively and start to uh, make this energy transition a reality. They said we also have filled some gaps, so we still continue the innovation on how do we do this in a more distributed way, how to develop the energy grid storage technology at a cheaper cost, just to name a few. So I'm not saying we solved all the problems, but I'm feeling optimistic. I want you to help me picture where we're at with those capabilities. If we're comparing renewable energy technologies to the evolution of automobiles, are we at the Ford Model T or at the Tesla stage right now? We definitely not at a Model T anymore. We are much more advanced. And as you probably all know, for many areas in the U.S., wind power is the cheapest way to produce electricity. Solar is in many areas just following the, a little bit behind the wind that it will become the cheapest way of producing electricity. So we made tremendous progress in these technologies. But they said we are working on the next level. So let's say go up to a Tesla here where we're working on the next molecules or kind of solar inks, how we call it, that you could use solar everywhere, that it can make solar panels the way you're making newspapers, that it bring this solar materials on a very thin membrane. So there is still a lot of innovation going on for these technologies. So we don't have to wait another 10 years for the next technology. The time is right now to bring the technology into the marketplace. So it sounds like you have an optimism for how quickly this could happen if there's an emphasis. Solar and wind are not the only games in town. Colorado has the ability to generate hydropower, geothermal power. Are there any other lesser-known renewables that you think could become mainstream? We need every technology. We cannot just say it's only wind or it's only solar. It will be a combination of all clean energy technologies to really achieve the energy transition. And this is in the renewable space. Geothermal is something which we're learning more and more through much more sophisticated modeling and simulation about how how our subsurface works. So there's new kind of drilling technologies now also penetrating into the geothermal area. And then, of course, then there's completely carbon neutral technologies such as small modular reactor on the nuclear side. There's a lot of research going on in this area. So we see, can you make small modular reactors in the way that you assemble them in a manufacturing place, so which would significantly decrease the cost of this technology? A little bit early right now, we have to see how this develops over the next couple of years. But the message is, we need to look at all clean energy technologies across the whole portfolio to, to get ready for the energy transition. Another piece of this puzzle is battery storage. So much success of renewables seems to hinge on that. Here's the president again. We need a modern electric grid 
one that is much higher capacity, more resilient transmission wires, and, you know, and with, has more storage capacity, using advanced batteries so we can hold on to surplus energy generated when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. So where do we stand with battery storage capacity for renewable energy right now? So when you talk about battery storage, you're, you're thinking about kind of lithium batteries using our cars. And look, these batteries were developed, you know, that you get the biggest, the highest energy density with the lightweight as possible to put into our cars. So when you look into grid storage, battery technologies, which is scalable for grid storage, we might use different technologies. So a lot of these technologies are under development right now, and this can be flow cell, flow batteries, and new kind of chemistry they're working on. Because for most grid storage applications, space is not as limited as you have in a car. So a lot of the uh, utility spaces or transformer stations have space to put a larger scale batteries on there. I think there is a lot of research going on. What is the next kind of chemistry for these batteries? What is the technologies? And you might also have seen this, that the Department of Energy announced another kind of grid storage, almost like an earth shot, how we call it, to see what is the technology of choice? What do we, where do we need to bring new innovation forward? Because you're right. I mean, storage will play a massive role in the energy transition. And there's still a lot of research to be done in the area of grid storage to build this out in the next couple of years. And what about the ability to move power around from different parts of the country where, say, wind is producing highly in one area and not another? What needs to happen there? Yes, we need a a national plan how we're building transmission line and the transmission structure because it will be regionally very different. Under the Biden administration, there's a big effort there to see what is the right balance between the new technologies, let's say in the distributed energy systems versus transmission lines. How do we find a good compromise there? What is the most efficient way to build this out? And there is a couple of research laboratories, we are among one of them, to see what is the best strategy for the U.S. to build this out in the future. If coal and gas disappeared tomorrow... How far is the country away from having enough transmission capacity and storage to power the country on wind and solar or other types of alternative fuels? It's not a simple answer. It really depends how we're building out the grid of the future. But it's very, very clear, no matter what, we have to invest in the next generation of grid architecture because the consumer requests more kind of control. They want to put their, you know, the electric cars and want to go, let's say, can, can my electric car really power also my house in a time of an outage? So based on some of the consumer, what we're seeing is they demand a more controllable grid. By definition, this will lead us down into a path of a kind of more bi-directional grid, more distributed grid. So we need to adapt the grid anyway towards this no matter if we're moving further down to uh, uh, close coal plants or not. This change in our grid architecture will come because a lot of consumers requesting this change as well. So just to be clear, if we lost fossil fuels tomorrow, we aren't in a place yet where renewables can meet all of our needs. Right now, I mean, if all off tomorrow, it would be very, very hard. Because as you know, when you look into our renewable uh, percentage, we, we are not there. So look, we need to have a transition plan to do this as fast 
as we can in a way that we keeping all the lights on, that this is secure and resilient. And this is why it's so urgent that we starting this transition right now, because we cannot go this way for another 10, 15 years and then say overnight, okay, now let's make the change. This is a process. This will take some time. And that's why I say there is the urgency to start this kind of transition to a clean energy system right now with the current technology we have, continue to work on innovation to prove the technology and make this a transition over the next 10, 15 years. President Biden said renewable energy technologies from places like NREL have the potential to out-innovate the rest of the world and drive down the cost of renewable energy. How much stock do you put in a sort of arms race for renewable energy technology? Is global competition a real factor or motivator in the work that happens here? You know, I tell you, my view is we are in the U.S., we are the best nation. If we say we put a man on the moon, we put a man on the moon. If we make this decision that we change our energy systems to make it clean and affordable and resilient, we can do this. So I think we are a very competitive country. I would argue perhaps one of the most competitive countries in the whole world. So for my view, having this competition out there is for our scientists and engineers a good thing because it brings us to this that we show the world that the U.S., we are the leader, we are the innovator of the world, we know how we're pushing this ahead. So, yes, I think it is with specific uh, states, for example, it is a, a little bit of a race, but I think we need to be the leader in this because this is where the future goes. This is where millions of good paying jobs will be re- related in this clean energy transfer. And I think also for our U.S. companies, if we have the leadership in this type of technologies, then this is where the world will look at the United States to purchase these technologies, to work together with our companies to implement these technologies. That's why we need to be the world leader in this area. And I think we still are. CPR has reported recently on the decommissioning of coal plants in the state. In Colorado Springs, the stopgap measure for reliability to replace the coal-fired energy from Martin Drank power plant is natural gas. In Pueblo, they're considering nuclear. What's your take on the best way for coal plants to transition while renewables are still getting ready for prime time? It depends because look, when you look in some of the regions, there might be a transition from the coal plant perhaps to as a as an intermediate step to natural gas, you might be able to co-fire this with, let's say, some uh, biomass we have around, you know, from uh, our pine beetle kills. Uh, I know that certain coal plants look into all this area, but energy or environmental justice is a very, very important element. And I tell you, for me to see this, that the Biden administration takes this huge kind of focus on energy and environmental justice is absolutely critical. By changing these communities over, let's say, to the next generation of clean energy technologies, we cannot leave these regions behind. We need to find a way to transition the workforce in this area. We need to find a way to make sure that these communities are not falling off the cliff. That's why all these transitions have to be viewed under the umbrella or under the kind of bigger spotlight of how do you do this in a just way that we're not leaving any communities behind in the United States. The bipartisan infrastructure bill in Congress includes a sizable budget for power transmission. How would that money filter down to impact the technology developments that you're working on at NREL? 
what the Biden administration, at least as far as I have seen this, really emphasized is how can you get this technology into the marketplace? How can we encourage people to build rooftop solar? How do we write the policies correctly to get this technology deployed? Because look, this is where we can start to create good paying jobs immediately. But in some of the spills, what I also have seen is a kind of a next level of okay, how can we, through pilot project and demonstration project, encourage the next technology to scale it faster to bring into the marketplace. I always like to bring this example on solar. It took 30 years from the original concept to now have solar at low enough cost that this is one of the cheapest ways of producing electricity. For this new technology, we don't have 30 years to scale it and bring it into the marketplace. We only have about 10 years. This is why this infrastructure bill is also important to encourage pilot projects to reach out to communities and see how can communities be the forefront of bringing this kind of capabilities online. This will be very, very critical. We need to scale this technology in a faster way because we don't have 30 years. We only have about 10. Do you think that the funding from the infrastructure bill could be a game changer for lowering the cost of renewables? Yes, I think, look, this is, as a scientist, a one-time opportunity to really jump on this and bring the energy transition through the communities in a just way, also creating the jobs in these areas, but also help to accelerate and scale some of these technologies for companies to deploy. President Biden wants to create a civilian climate corps, similar to the conservation corps that President Roosevelt created during the Great Depression. Would something like that really incentivize younger Americans to go into the renewables field and into those jobs that you've talked about? I am seeing in the young generation this big desire to be impactful, to make a big change, so to really help to accelerate the energy transition and create a better planet. So I think, yes, so this type of activities, I think it will be very well received to show, yes, I was part of this transition. And I tell you, when I go around, the excitement right now is just unbelievable, where people, they're working so hard, they're getting up every day to really work on this energy transition, to be part of this, to create a better planet for our grandchildren. And this is what I'm seeing kind of ingrained in next generation of scientists, of engineers coming to NREL. And also when I talk to our children's friend, they all always ask me, Martin, what else can I do to make an impact? So yes, I think this will be a big motivation for our next generation of people going into space and also being part of the energy transition. When I hear people talk about climate change, a lot of times I hear about existential dread and fear, but I hear you talking a lot about excitement and hope. What is giving you hope? Uh, the U.S. is built on people who come here to really make a difference. Look at myself. I was born in Germany. I came to the United States in 1996 because I wanted to be where the action is. I want to be part of this. So this is ingrained in us in the United States that, again, if we make the decision to achieve something, we will achieve it. So if we as a country make this decision to, to be the leader in the energy transition, I'm absolutely convinced that this country, that we will accomplish this. And then in addition, I tell you where my big hope is, is when I talk to all our young scientists, engineers, when I reach out to the friends for our own children, they all are dedicated. They want to make an impact. They 
want to be part of this to create a better planet. And this is the generation will make this successful. And that's why I'm, I'm optimistic. Well, it will not be easy. It will be a hard transition. So, but look, if we all pull in the same direction, this is the country to, to be the leader. And this is the country to show the world how to do that. Thank you for sharing that hope. And thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Martin Keller is the director of INREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden. He's also president of the Alliance for Sustainable Energy. That's the company that operates INREL for the U.S. Department of Energy. It's been nearly two years since Colorado confirmed its first wolf pack in almost a century. But since then, the animals have mysteriously disappeared. Now CPR's Sam Brash reports there's only one wolf in the area, raising questions about how and if it can be protected. This mud is perfect. It's a windy afternoon when wolf expert Karen Vardaman takes me to a spring-fed pond in Colorado's farthest northwest corner in Moffat County. We tiptoe across the bank, careful not to disturb any animal tracks. Coyote and fox, a lot of deer and antelope, bunny rabbit. Vardaman has visited the area every few months for the last couple of years. It's part of her job with Working Circle, her conservation nonprofit. To protect wolves, it tries to work hand-in-hand with ranchers and teach them how to live with the predators without losing any livestock. On this July trip, she discovers a critical piece of data sunken into the mud. So that, we believe, is a wolf track. What comes up for you when you look at evidence like this? Um, Sadness, but at the same time, huge relief that maybe there's one. It gives hope, right? Gives hope. Vardaman invited me out here to let people know a wolf is probably still living in this part of Colorado. It's a job she used to leave to Colorado Parks and Wildlife. In early 2020, the state agency confirmed as many as seven wolves were here in the area. It detailed evidence about the pack publicly over the next few months. A pack of wolves in northwest Colorado has Four been scat spotted. samples collected near a scavenged elk carcass. Florida Parks and Wildlife Park. says the wolves are largely migrating from larger populations in Wyoming. Residents have reported. But those press releases dwindled to almost nothing after last November. That's when Colorado voters narrowly decided the state should reintroduce gray wolves. As attention shifts to that project, Vardaman worries people could forget about the wolves that are already here. You know, we had a whole pack here, and we only have one. We need to do what we can to keep them safe. The fate of the Moffat County wolf pack is not a complete mystery. To explain what might have happened, we head just a few miles north. The hike rolls through broad valleys below low forested mountains. This corner is amazing wolf country. The problem is... You've got Wyoming right here. We reach a green, unlocked gate. It marks the state border with Wyoming. And what's critical to understand is the legal difference on either side. In Colorado, wolves are protected as a state-endangered species. Wyoming, wolves are considered vermin. All they have to do is cross that line, be killed on sight. Last year, I broke a story that a Colorado resident killed a few wolves legally just across this border. As for the rest of the pack... You know, were they killed? Nobody talks about it. So we can only go by the evidence that we find and collect. And that evidence shows wolves have almost disappeared from this place. Vardaman has observed fewer and fewer wolves in her regular trips. And a state summary of sighting reports also shows a steady decline throughout 2020. 
we don't think that there is a pack of wolves in Moffat County anymore. This is Eric O'Dell. He's the top conservation biologist for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. At a wolf reintroduction open house in Steamboat Springs, he says there's one main reason his agency hasn't had any updates on Moffat County wolves. It's pretty basic. Biologists just haven't seen any. We haven't had much to say because we just don't have much to say about it. Another complication, Colorado is now the lone wildlife authority protecting wolves after the former Trump administration removed them from the federal endangered species list. If the agency reveals too much information, Odell says it risks drawing a map for wolf opponents. It's, a, it's an important balance. You, you have to get information, you have to be transparent about it, but you also have to protect the resources that we're given the honor to protect. Hi, this is Karen. Hey, Karen, it's Sam. How you doing? Hey, Vardaman has compiled more evidence in the months since our trip. In August, one of her camera traps pictured a single silver wolf. To protect the animal, she thinks it's better to be transparent. She's detailed what she knows to select ranchers so they can protect their livestock. She's given it to the state so they can watch for hunters. By telling the public, she hopes people realize there's still an animal out there, something worth saving. So that those that might want to do the wolf harm think twice about it. We've got to be able to protect what we have before we should be bringing other critters in. Otherwise, she thinks the return of wolves to Colorado will be a brief moment before another long absence. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Something happened in 1952 that still reverberates across the U.S. today. The Bureau of Indian Affairs initiated a program to move Native Americans off of reservations and into cities. It's part of the reason citizens of more than 200 tribal nations now call Denver home. Indigenous people on reservations were promised good jobs in cities, but the BIA had ulterior motives. Here's American Public Media's Max Nesterak in his special report, Uprooted, the 1950s plan to erase Indian country. Politicians and government workers believe Native people had to assimilate into white mainstream American society for their own good. I found a radio report from an anthropologist named Ruth Underhill, who traveled through Indian country in the 1950s. Here she is interviewing a white BIA official working on the Navajo reservation named Mel Bickle. Well, I've always felt that the only real solution for the Navajo was to uh, cease to be a Navajo. I spoke with Doris Goodteacher in 2019 about what it was like for her to participate in the BIA's relocation program and thrive in Denver's indigenous community. You were born on the Santee Sioux Reservation in Nebraska. You moved to Denver when you were 11 years old. What do you remember about life on the reservation when you were a kid? Life on the reservation as I knew it, it was a very close-knit community There was good memories, you know. Um, We didn't have television. We didn't have running water. Those were challenges, obviously, you know. But in the summer, my mother planted huge gardens, huge gardens, and she canned. I mean, everything was plentiful. The other thing is that my stepfather hunted And so there was always meat, you know. I never liked venison, but there was quail and, you know, things that are like gourmet now. And then things were focused on the Episcopal Church. What I do remember about that part of our life, though, was that it was a time when traditional practices were outlawed. 
And so, like I said, everything was around the church, and it was not okay to do anything traditional, like go to powwows and go to ceremonies and so on. I want to talk a little bit more about that later, but I want to talk also about how you came to Denver. Your family relocated to Denver in 1956. How did your parents talk about why they decided to move to Denver? My stepfather worked always as a laborer, and, you know, there was no more employment. But at that time, there was this BIA program, and my stepfather signed our family up for that. And my mother didn't want to come. My family chose Denver only because it was closest to our reservation. So I was the oldest of seven, but there were four of us when we got here. And I remember just being in awe of the buildings. And I remember it was a two-story unit that they put us in, and there was an upstairs bedroom that overlooked the city. And at night, I think me and my mom had the hardest time and we would be looking out there, and I hated it. I, I, you know, I hated being here. But my siblings, it was an adventure because, I mean, one of the first things they experienced was flushing the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they would keep flushing the toilet, flushing the toilet. They wanted to get in the bathtub because all we had on the res was a big galvanized tub and my mother heated water in. So that was a new experience. Oh, totally new. And I just remember they just thought it was great, but I, I didn't like it. What did you miss? I I missed my family. I missed the elders. I missed my grandparents. I missed my mom's friends that I was so close to. It was so foreign to me. I think there were several things that helped me personally. I was able to make friends in the little community that we lived in. And then the other thing that happened that I remember shortly after we came was St. John's Cathedral. The Episcopal bishop there took an interest in all of the Episcopalian Native people that were coming to the urban area. And so there began to be gatherings in the church at the cathedral And then the early 60s or so, that Indian Center, you know, came about and other Indian organizations. And so my mom would always say, you know, well, we may be different tribes, but we always stick together. So we became involved with the Indian community at large in the city So I know the purpose of the Voluntary Relocation Program, the BIA wanted to assimilate American Indians. As you grew up, how did you and your family balance hanging on to your Santee Sioux identity and making friends in the Native community and fitting into Denver? 
Well, I think what helped us to balance that was my grandparents were still living, and we visited them. So I think that helped. And what did your grandparents tell you about what it means to be Santisu? My grandma and my grandpa told me, never forget where you came from. After you moved to Denver, what was it like going back to the Santee Sioux Reservation? It always had a powerful, powerful draw. And it was almost like a spiritual experience. And I always felt, upon leaving there, mixed feelings about I. it was where I was from. And I was always sad about leaving my relatives, my grandma especially. I was very, very close to her. But interestingly enough, once my grandmother died, it wasn't the same. And so she was, she was that connection. Um, I know you said your family came to Denver because you're stepfather, he was looking for work. Um, right. I'm curious what kind of work he ended up doing, and do you think your parents found what they were hoping to find in Denver and in moving here? I think they did. I think they did. My stepfather always did construction work, and my mother, she worked as a housekeeper, and she worked as a cook. But I think that what happened is as we became more assimilated to the city, and I know for me, um, as I became more assimilated to the city, I knew I would never go back there. I would never go back there to live, ever. Why is that? Well, it isn't the community that I knew You know, the church no longer is the focal point of the community. There's a lot of high unemployment rates. There's a lot of substance abuse, domestic violence. And I say that because my own family experienced that. You know, I say now, you know, I'm... I'm not a good Indian. A lot of people talk about going back, going back, you know. But I know I could never go back. And then my mom, she used to say, one of these days I'm going to go back when I retire. But when it came, actually came down to it, she said, I know I can't ever go back and live there, mm. you know, because things had changed. For the relocation program, I know that it's still controversial because there are certainly some positive sides that your stepdad, he found the job that he was looking for. And then there's also the obvious pain that comes with assimilation. How do you think about the program now? I think now what I've learned is that a third of us stayed, a third of them went back and forth and another third went back and never came back. Went back to the reservations. Right, and never came back. And so I think for some people it can work. And for those people that that it can work, 
I think what's critical is that that family learns to live in both worlds. You don't forget your culture. You always embrace your culture. You never escape from it. You never want to escape from it. And you want to take everything that is positive about that culture and keep that close. But at the same time, you have to live in this other world, this dominant society world. And you have grandchildren in Denver now. How do you teach them to live in both worlds? Well, I have three grandchildren. They always grew up going to powwows. They're learning. They want to learn. And like you said, powwows, they were illegal when you were growing up. I know. I what, was, what was it like I to share that with your grandkids? Oh, it's been great. I mean, they love it, you know. And the first powwow I went to was in Denver. It was at St. John's Cathedral. I believe in these traditions. I believe in the stories that my great-grandmother told. I've been to Sundances now. You know, I believe in that there's good medicine and bad medicine. That's what my great-grandma used to talk about. And so those were pieces of the culture that were intertwined with the Episcopal Church. So I don't think it's a bad thing to have both those things in your life. Those are both worlds that you live in. Yes. Doris, thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. Doris, good teacher, speaking with me in 2019. She moved to Denver from the Santee Sioux Nation in 1956 as part of the Bureau of Indian Affairs Voluntary Relocation Program. On Monday, Colorado Matters and CPR News presents a special report from American public media, Uprooted, the 1950s plan to erase Indian country. That's Monday at 9 a.m. and 7 p.m. on CPR News and KRCC. And that's our show for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.